This week on Trek Mary Kill, Vulcans, Sliders, Bunts. Next. Cisco's oldest rival. It's been a long time. Challenges him to one final showdown. We will destroy them. The name of the game is baseball. But for Cisco, this is no time to play. This game is supposed to be fun, not a life and death struggle. On the next Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Trek, Mary, kill. Hi, I'm Brian. Hi, I'm Michael. Welcome to Trek, Mary, Kill, a podcast that judges episodes of Star Trek with the impartiality and skill of a Major League Baseball umpire. Uh, joining us this week is Michael Bauman, one of the best Major League Baseball writers working today. He writes for Fangraphs and previously for The Ringer, and it was during that time he interviewed DS9 showrunner Iris Stephen Bear about the very episode we'll be discussing today, Take Me Out to the Hall of Suite. Michael, welcome. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this. Me too. Uh, definitely when I started doing the show, I was like, who are people I definitely want to have? And you were at the top of the list. And I was dancing around. Should it just be the baseball episode? And it kind of makes the most sense. And then I, I was like, does he want to talk about it? But that interview was like five years ago now. So I figure enough time has passed. <laughs> yeah, I went back and listened to uh, that episode because like you said, it had been forever ago. And in the the banter segment, of that podcast, which has itself not existed for about at least two years now. Uh, We talked about Shohei Otani getting posted and (laughs) where might he go once he comes to Major League Baseball. So that's that's the Ben Lindbergh guarantee is that no matter when in time a podcast episode happens, we're going to talk about Shohei Otani. Listener, whether or not you're a baseball fan, you've probably heard the term Moneyball or even you just heard the movie that starred Brad Pitt. Uh, And that was a story about a moment in time where a team figured out that they could exploit some baseball stats that were extremely helpful to winning, but were sort of undervalued by and large for essentially not being sexy enough. And that story really brought into the mainstream advanced analytics uh, things that had already been coming about in baseball industry, but also it introduced sort of this uh, path of writing where creative sort of maybe false narratives or sort of uninteresting angles of like, it's just about the numbers. And baseball's already always sort of been like a romantic sport with a narrative attached to it. And certain numbers were always used to pump up that romanticism. I feel like for a time it sort of went away. I think it, in the last 10 years, it's really found its footing again. And Michael, I really appreciate what you do uh, with that. Your writing is not just about the stats. You, you do include the narratives and maybe the stats guide the narratives there, but you don't forget about the human uh, aspect of people, uh, the humanistic approach to your writing. And I really appreciate that. So thanks. That, I appreciate you saying that. Cause that's something that I've, I think gets lost in really statty writers like me. You know, I come from like a traditional journalism background. So like, I like the storytelling part of this and, you know, part of one of the, the things that I think that we as an industry have gotten better at, uh, in the past five years or so is finding ways to use those numbers to tell stories rather than just throw them out there. So I appreciate that. Yeah, well, we're right in the middle of Major League Baseball's postseason. The League Championship Series are going on, so I figured it'd be the right time to do the baseball episode uh, in Star Trek, which is not an episode that's about the stats being more important than the people. It's all about the people. It's the 25th anniversary as well of Take Me Out to the Hall Suite, 
the fourth episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine's seventh and final season. It debuted in syndication October 21st, 1998, written by San Francisco Giants fan Ron Moore and directed by Chip Chalmers, whose baseball affiliation I couldn't find out in time for this recording. I'm going to assume he was a Dodgers fan because he worked in Hollywood for 30 years uh, and then he retired to Florida, it looks like. So it'd be funny if he was a Marlins fan. But anyway, uh, the doing the memory full Mike Piazza over there. That's right. Memory Alpha synopsis. When Captain Solok of the Federation starship Tecumbra challenges former classmate Cisco and his crew to a game of baseball, Cisco refuses to lose to the arrogant Vulcan and begins to take the game too seriously. This involves him kicking Rom off the team. Um, yeah, yes, this is a this is a side story from the big Dominion War arc. But as Ira Bear mentions in your interview very much, it's like it's not a side story, just life. Like some there's war going on. And sometimes you have a a couple of days during your week where things are different. But do you remember the first time you saw this episode? Uh, Not specifically. I had sort of dropped out of watching Deep Space Nine regularly uh, by the time this aired. I remember going back and watching the finale, not having watched it regularly for a couple years and having no idea what was going on. I was like, oh, they've they've got a new Dax. So I definitely watched this for the first time. Uh, on streaming. Uh, And my first reaction, I think this is sort of a, uh, I I imagine like everybody who sees media that is a fictional depiction of uh, the world they actually work in has this problem, but baseball movies drive me nuts because it's so difficult to film it convincingly. Uh, because the the action and I, I mentioned this in the interview too that like the actions are so unique to the sport that there are like three convincing non-baseball playing actors ever in like the history of of tv and film and so it's sort of it it it's it can be a little bit tough to watch um but obviously i have a soft spot for for this episode you know being it being at the the center of two of my greatest interests Great. So that's going to lead me into my next thing. When did you come to Star Trek? When did you fall in love with it? I don't remember a time before I watched uh, Star (laughs) Trek. Uh, My dad was a a regular Next Generation viewer. um, So I just remember like being on the couch for like four or five, six years old watching with him. Um, And we, you know, taped every episode because this was the early 90s and that's what you did. Uh, and, you know, I'd watch them back and forth. And I'd remember, you know, I got came to Star Trek sort of the same way I came to baseball. I was realizing that there's this huge, like, world of, of folklore and reference material. And I got really into that as a young kid. Um, so, like, I don't know. I really, like I said, I really don't remember a time before I was into Star Trek. And sort of the same thing with baseball, I'm going to guess. Yeah, I so I do like actually remember it was I grew up outside of Philadelphia um, and I remember sort of understanding the sport uh, the summer. I guess this would have been the summer before first grade for me, which happened to be 1993, uh, which was an auspicious year for both the Phillies and the Giants. Uh, (laughs) And so obviously the Phillies won won the pennant that year, uh, went to the World Series and didn't win another playoff game for another 15 years. Uh, so I, you know, know how to hitch my wagon to a winner. Uh, <laughs> but, it, you know, it was just something that I, I, I sort of vaguely remember a time before I understood baseball. But it's been, you know, ever since I knew enough to be interested in stuff, that's it's I've just been fascinated by it. 
Now, listener, I promise I haven't been conning you all this time. I'm also a, a part-time baseball blogger. I'm a huge San Francisco Giants fan. And as Michael mentioned, he's a huge Philadelphia Phillies fan. But I promised him that we're not going to talk a lot about baseball right now, especially since our two teams are sort of in opposite directions of success. His team has stars. If you, say, my- the, if you say the words Cody Ross, I'm hanging up. <laughs> That will not be mentioned for okay, many reasons. <laughs> but anyway, we won't be talking about that, although the Giants do come up in this episode. Take me out to the Hollow Suite, and we'll mention that. I'm the same way. Oh, well, I remember both times introduction of uh, Star Trek and baseball to me, but they were both through my dad, who both died young and when I was young. So like they're both equally meaningful to me, and I am both equally obsessed with them. That's why I'm still doing baseball writing and podcasting about that and also star trek i just decided well i can't scratch that itch enough so i'm gonna do star trek podcast but i totally understand when it's not baseball it's star trek is what i'm guessing is yeah. going on in mind what but i did say we wouldn't talk about the phillies and the giants but i do i am curious to know what deep space nine character spirit do you think most embodies the spirit of a phillies fan so i think that they're the the, the o'brien bashir dynamic uh captures both sides of Philly's fandom. I mean, the just sort of beleaguered, long suffering, uh, very down to earth uh, side of the Phillies fan is, is encaptured in, in Miles O'Brien. And then Julian Bashir, who is uh, very passionate about his interests and extremely horny. That's, uh, <laughs> that's the other half of it. So I, I had no know, idea most, there was a vein of horniness in Philly's fans. <laughs> you have, uh, you got you got a taste of Pat Burrell, so to speak. You have there's like an unbroken line of of which Phillies corner outfielder the moms of the region would throw it all away for. And so, yeah, does does big wet boy Brandon Marsh uh, sneak into this conversation at no, all? It's, or, it's no? Nick Castellanos now okay. uh, for that Pat Burrell. And then before that, Darren Dalton, I, re- I remember being very confused as like six and seven years old. Like I was a big Lenny Dykstra person and all my friends' moms wouldn't talk about anybody other than Darren Dalton. I was like, I don't get it. Like he's a good, he walks a lot. He gets on base, but I'm, you know. <laughs> well, this is an important thing for children to learn that, that their yeah. moms and dads have <laughs> different interests when it comes to baseball for sure. Uh, all right. And then this is the question that I was, I threw out there in the rundown I sent, but one, I don't, I'm not sure I have a firm answer to, but it's worth asking. This is essentially a holodeck episode, which, uh, and deep space nine, they started to do a little bit later in its run in next generation. We saw, you know, kind of really, uh, silly holodeck episodes. And here's one where they use it to what, you know, modern audiences would probably do. Let's do some incredible things. That, you know, let's play at Yankee Stadium. Let's play at Dodger Stadium. Let's play in front of a big stadium of crowds. Like, is there a a baseball moment you would attempt to recreate in the holodeck or to either play as or just witness? I mean, there are definitely moments from baseball history I would love to to go back and witness. I don't know how much seeing it in the holodeck would really do it for me, you know, as opposed to watching on, uh, you know, watching newsreel footage for instance of of Babe Ruth's called shot or the end of the 1924 world series or or uh Merkel's boner or something like that. I did say I did uh bring this up in the the interview with Ivan Iris Stephen Baird that like obviously they 
the the vernacular of baseball that they had like aesthetically was sort of it was 98 99 because that's when it was shot but they had an opportunity to do something you know go back and pick something with a distinctive aesthetic for that period of time like they did with the baseball and emissary and i think that's probably what i would go back and watch is something a, a form of baseball that's not that would like be barely recognizable to, to us today. So whether that's like the cocaine and AstroTurf eighties or, or the dead ball era, um, or maybe one of those bar barnstorming tours between major league all-stars and Negro league all-stars, like that's something, the kind of thing I would go back and watch or, you know, participate in, in the holodeck. You wouldn't want to see uh, Nick Castellanos face off against Babe Ruth or something, or I just want to see like a, one of the best hitters of all time, like face a modern slider. That yeah. Kind of that, <laughs> I mean, I, that would be fun. Like for, I'd do that once, but yeah, uh, you know, I think we all know how that would go. I'd want to see game seven of the 62 world series. I want to, cause I never saw uh, Richardson moving. I want to watch that whole ninth inning where yeah. the giants just biff it. So uh, that kind of thing. I want to like, I want to be standing on the field, like where the umpire is just be, you know, cause you can just be right there and just watch it and be like, God, oh, that sucks. <laughs> that sounds so stressful to me. Like actually <laughs> like, being on the field while a major league baseball game is taking Well, you place. would just tell the computer I am, a, I am a observer. So I'm ghost you know, mode. I'm, yeah. Yeah. I'm ghost mode and the safeties are on. I'm not going to get hurt by the ball or anything like that. So uh, I guess <laughs> you're way more adventurous than I am. I'll post a link to the Ira Bear interview from The Ringer that if people want to go and listen to it, it's like 35 minutes. It's a it's a really nice conversation that flows very easily. Um, you know, Ben, I always like to ask people, like, how close have you come to touching the creator, like being a part of Star Trek? And, you know, interviewing a showrunner is pretty high up the, on the list there. So actually, I'm wondering, like, were you nervous about that? Because it's I mean, how often in your baseball work do you actually then get to do some Star Trek related stuff? That's definitely one of the more in-depth uh, interviews. I've so I've actually I, later on when I was writing about the Orville for the Ringer, I interviewed Ronald D. Moore and Penny Johnson, who you know wrote and starred in this episode. Uh, but they, um, or no, Ronald D. Moore wasn't for the Orville; it was for for all mankind. Mm -hmm. um, so when I was doing sort of TV writing work on the side, like I have gotten close to, like you said, touching the creator. But I was definitely. I remember this interview starting off kind of awkwardly and that dominated like my memory of the experience, but, um, so I, back and listening to it. yeah, I couldn't tell. Yeah. <laughs> I, I remember he said something weird at the very beginning and we, Ben and I had gone off, uh, we had had a run of like kind of odd interviews, uh, during the 2017 season, I remember. So I, I was worried it was going in that direction again, but it really picked up momentum and I'd forgotten how much I enjoyed doing that. So, yeah, I, I would say it was not nervous in terms of like getting starstruck, but like nervous in terms of we've got to do this podcast. And if this interview isn't any good, like everybody's going to know about it. So uh, I'd say that's more where my anxiety came in. Fair enough. Yeah, it was part of, I think, a themed week on the site, too. So. Yeah, that was Ben's idea was was space week. Uh, so he leaned on me heavily for that. Uh, Ira Bear commented that one of the things he wanted to do both in your interview, but generally, I remember this quote before your interview, I think he had said this was that Michael Pillar's favorite sport was baseball. And the first thing Michael Pillar did was kill baseball. <laughs> he took over mm -hmm. in Star Trek The Next Generation. It's interesting your point about doing different eras, I believe. 
in Evolution, which is the season three premiere where we learned that baseball had died. I think Dr. Stubbs is reliving a very old game from the 20s or something like that. He's replaying it in his mind. Uh, so that's that just your interview and that quote remind me of that. Yeah. And also, Ira Barrett mentioned he's basically ripping off himself for Take Me Out to the Hollow Suite. He had written the old ball game episode for the TV show Fame. Uh, and it has literally the Nog scene where he's tagging out all the Vulcans that was in there. Max Grudenchik, who uh, was playing Rom, was the worst player on the team. Rom was, but was actually the best baseball player of the cast. I guess we can talk about here. Uh, Sirik Lofton, who plays Jake Sisko, is the nephew, cousin of uh, nephew, nephew of uh, Kenny Lofton. One of the most 1990s baseball players you could imagine, Kenny Lofton. Definitely. Uh, a fantastic player, probably should be. Uh, should have been a Hall of Famer. Yeah, yeah, more Hall of Fame uh, attention there. But also uh, my only memory of Kenny Lofton, unfortunately, to this. Well, he played for the Giants, so there's that. But the strongest memory is when he cut in front of line to get some UCLA basketball tickets. That's unfortunately the, my strongest Kenny Lofton memory. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I do think it's funny that like this is why uh, Strzok Lofton's wearing a, a Braves hat, obviously, uh, yes. because Kenny Lofton was playing it, during his very brief but very like highly hyped uh, uh, stint with the Braves after he played with, with Cleveland and uh, for most of the nineties and, and didn't really, didn't really take off in Atlanta the way that I definitely expected him to. Uh, some other specific notes. I think it was tough that Jake's nickname was the slider. That's brutal. That's yeah. That's <laughs> awful. I mean, uh, Captain Solak goes and scouts, Scouts them, and he knows that one of the players' nickname is the slider, and that's the pitcher. So that made it a little easier for uh, pitch scouting. Uh, the positions: Nog was the catcher, Wharf at first, Cisco was at second, Kira the shortstop, Cassidy Yates third base, Cork and left, Dax in center, Bashir in right, and Jake was the pitcher. The batting order: Bashir leading off. Your your pitch was like oh, he could have been the shortstop. <laughs> <laughs> having your your genetically enhanced guy as your shortstop made the most I, sense. I felt obligated to say that, knowing you know, obviously the reason they didn't make him do too much baseball stuff is he's British and therefore you know can't make heads or tails of, of baseball. But you know, it, it would make they they even mentioned this that like everybody want everybody has like certain abilities that that would lend them to certain positions. You would definitely want this guy playing up the middle if he's got you know bonkers hand eye coordination. Yeah. I mean, Kira, good enough, I, I guess. But, but, you know, Bashir, Alexander Siddig, I should also mention, like, he looked really good. <laughs> so he didn't know anything about baseball, but he, he did. He he was selling jeans very yeah, nicely. Definitely. And, and, and yeah, definitely. Um, so, OK, Bashir, Kira, Worf, this is your batting order. I, I, and I couldn't figure out the rest until the end. So I'm going to guess here. Captain Cisco hitting cleanup, you know, batting after Worf. That kind of makes sense to me. But then it looks like you've got Quark, Nog, Cassidy and Dax and then Jake Sisko. It looked like they were playing with a pitcher. Uh, they were playing with the National League rules before the Universal DH. That's right. my suspicion. Well, they because Jake is the the person Rom pinch hits for at the end. That's so. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so why he'd be hitting ninth though, even though he would obviously be one of the better hitters on the team, just by virtue of having ever played baseball yes. before. Well, this is the this is the thing. You've got Ron Moore, who in your interview, uh Ira Bear says was was 
maybe just getting into baseball, which doesn't necessarily track with what I recall from this being discussed, but let's just assume that's the case. Iribert also mentions that he didn't seem like he was a fan of the Universal DH or a fan of the DH at all. So it kind of makes sense that they were, if he goes to a lot of Dodgers games, that they're just like, they didn't realize that the pitcher could bat anywhere and that the pitcher would be batting nine. I could There's, just I, I could also see just sort of autopiloting a lineup if you yes, know, having yeah, been a fan of a National League team. Yep. Like, oh, yeah, you know, the pitcher bats ninth, whatever. The, uh, the box score from the game, give real quick. The Logicians, 10 runs, 14 hits, no errors. The Niners, that's right, the Vulcan team, the Logicians, and the Niners, Deep Space Niners, uh, one run, seven hits, four errors, uh, two ejections. Benjamin Sisko ejected by hum, home plate umpire Odo in the fifth inning. And Tecumbra Logicians manager Solak ejected by home plate umpire Odo in the ninth. Three of those errors that the Niners committed were through the first three innings. So the Niners really cleaned things up in the middle part of the game. Yeah, um, you know, they the first it was the first pitch of the game ended up being a home run. Yeah. Uh, so you know Jake settled down after that. It's sort of like the the um, the cliche about Greg Maddox is if, if you're going to get to him, you got to get to him. <laughs> Got to get really to them early. They really, they really grew into the game. So I That's think right. they should be pretty proud of their performance. Ben Lindbergh asks Ira Bear if we're on track for baseball to disappear in 2042, like it, like Michael Pillard dated the death of it in Next Generation, or I think it was the design that we finally got the date. But uh, he says, I remain optimistic that baseball, no matter how many changes they're talking about, you know, in terms of speeding up the game and everything else that they might do, baseball is eternal. And let's face it, if we lose baseball, then is there such a thing still as an American mass culture in American society? It will have morphed into something else unrecognizable. Uh, I agree with that 100%. I also think it looks like the pitch clock has saved baseball. Well, we'll see. I mean, I've, <laughs> there's well, there, saved there off are other monsters lurking out there, but I, you know, I, I've been, I was a big advocate for the pitch clock before it got instituted, and I really can't find anything to complain about about it through most of one season so how i think it's a, it's the uh the rare like thing that happens and it's almost universally good the actors love doing the episode they had a hoot doing it he said um yeah and the actors this was an episode that was also deemed so weird that brent spiner talked about it uh being referenced like i don't know what that's all about Star Trek doing a baseball episode. (laughs) And I I guess it was making me think like uh, the Deep Space Nine cast versus the Next Generation cast. I mean, is Data pitching? Is he playing multiple positions? I I think the the same thing would have to apply to what I said about Bashir. You want Data definitely playing up the middle. I mean, if ever there was a a right-handed power pitcher in the Star Trek canon, it's, it's William Riker. So, I... <laughs> Picard is just the manager. Like he's not playing as well. I think. Oh, I don't think so. Picard is like <laughs> the fun thing about this is is uh, uh, basically all of the male Star Trek captains have some kind of jock energy about them, uh-huh. and you for like Picard, he was the only freshman to win the Academy Marathon. Like you yep. don't Damn think I ever saw. Yeah, you think a, a guy you know with that kind of athletic pedigree is is just going to sit and, and not be the player coach? He's definitely going to want to be involved. Now, now I'm going to stay up all night trying to wonder what position Jean Luc Picard would play. Um, all right, let's get to the grades. 
so the first great scene I had was not the scene where Captain Solak uh, is greeted by Cisco and we get a sense that there's something between them. It's after when he issues the challenge. It's the next scene where Cisco brings this challenge uh, into the wardroom with the senior staff. And um, and he says, uh, listen, Captain Solak of the USS Tecumbra has issued a challenge. Uh, he thinks his crew's the finest crew in the fleet. I think we're the finest crew in the quadrant. So I accepted. And Worf says, we will destroy them. Yeah. <laughs> and then Kira asks, what's the contest? And then we get the the go to commercial line baseball. So I thought that was the first great scene. Uh, the next one I had was the first day of practice where Cisco gives his speech effectively Vulcans have no heart. <laughs> That's why we will win. Uh, we're playing with heart and soul. And uh, Michael, this was a scene as a 17 year old that just made me on the verge of tears. It made me so happy. I'm seeing what was at the time and probably still is my favorite starship captain or Starfleet captain wearing a San Francisco giants hat. Yeah. I imagine that would be. <laughs> Emotionally evocative. They have, my favorite football team at the time was called the 49ers and their team is called the Niners. So it's like, yeah, directly to me. <laughs> I thought that was really clever. The, the team name and the whole, like, I, we're, I guess I was sort of saving this for most of its time quality, but uh, I guess we'll get back to the, the uniforms later, but I did want to um, bring up something. Ira Bear said in our interview that, that Avery Brooks specifically, he apparently got really into this episode and he specifically requested number 15 on his Jersey because of Dick Allen, because Dick Allen was his favorite player. I just want to say that's so cool. Like that's such a cool favorite player to have if you're Avery Brooks. So he was a Philly for a long time, but yeah. it seems like he was more notable or most notable as a White Sox. I think you could. I don't. This I might be the wrong person to ask. I would have said that that he's mostly remembered as the Philly, but like obviously he had that great sort of second act with the the White Sox. The Phillies retired his number recently. Oh, uh, he's okay. one of a. I don't. It, it will surprise you to learn that he had kind of a fraught relationship with the fans and media uh, in this city. So um, I think he's somebody who has been historically like wildly underrated and uh, it's just now coming around to getting his due. But well, what's the thing about him that makes him underrated? I don't mean to put you on the spot. If you don't want to answer, you don't have to. So I can't think of another like black star to come, you know, star baseball player to come through in Philadelphia. Like he was sort of the the guy who broke through that. You know, it wasn't a, a formalized color, color barrier by that point, but like, you know, this was, uh, you know, he was like the the first black mainstream sports star in, in Philadelphia. Uh, he was a guy who's sort of there's a little bit of Joe Morgan about him in that his like his style of play and his game uh, looks a lot better knowing what we know now uh, about, you know, how you generate value in baseball rather than um you know, how the game was played in the 60s. He was also like the big breakout star of the 1964 team that famously collapsed down the stretch. I don't know how much of this, like this is like an open gaping psychic wound, even 50 or God, it's 60 years later now uh, in Philadelphia. But, you know, it was sort of big power hitting infielder, struck out a lot, but also, you know, had a 40 home run season, um, drew a lot of walks for his, uh, for his time period. I think it's just somebody who it took, but was also, you know, very blunt, very plain spoken, not 
you know, a particularly like cheerful, bubbly figure that, uh, so, you know, he was controversial in that, like, it just took the, uh, um, took the press in this city. I think, uh, you know, they weren't really sure what to make of him and and were kind of hostile to him. And that, you know, led to him leaving and then, and then coming back later at the very end of his career. Well, this is kind um, but, of like a kindred spirit, sounds like, for Avery Brooks, then. I mean, it seems like there's you a You understand, of yeah, like, knowing what, you know, I've never met Avery Brooks, but knowing, you know, what I've read about him, like, you understand why he would have liked uh, Dick Allen. You know, he was just the the kind of figure that he was in baseball history. Now, I think he's wearing a, a San Francisco Giants hat because yeah. Ron Moore, the writer, is a Giants fan. In 1999, though, at a Star Trek convention in Berlin, Avery Brooks was asked, Avery, are you a baseball fan in real life? And uh, and I don't know. I think there was a, some other quotage in there of like, were you? Did you pick the Giants hat because San Francisco, but Cisco like Captain Cisco? <clears throat> and he says, well, it's a kind of play on words after all, San Francisco. You know, like that. In all of history, the greatest ball players have played for San Francisco. This is Avery Brooks saying this, not me saying it. Yeah, I am a baseball fan. My father played in the semi-pro league when I was a child. He used to go as an umpire every Sunday. I don't have a favorite baseball team. I am a sports fan. If it's great play, then I love it. Actually, every team that I rooted for has lost, but I love to see great balls. <laughs> That's his well, answer. <laughs> I'm happy for you. I, so, uh, one thing Again, that, 17-year-old me is just absolutely beaming. That's I imagine. Like, yes. <laughs> the, the One thing that I like when it happens in... Um, in fiction or particularly like TV and movies is when like a, you throw in the subtle thing about a character being from someplace and like they're wearing the team's baseball cap. Like one of my favorites is, is spy game um, where Brad Pitt's wearing a, a San Diego Padres, Padres hat, hat. Yeah. <laughs> the, the anachronistic San, Di- San Diego Padres hat that I complain about a lot. Um, but there's not really, I don't know what that would be for New Orleans. Like it, but it would have been awesome if, if Ben Cisco was like a diehard LSU baseball fan. That would have been sick. It would have been um, cool. Well, yeah. he's a Buck Bukai fan. He's he's a True. fan of players. We, we learn as well. So, um, well, I mean, Liz Lemon being a huge Phillies fan also mm-hmm. one of the great uh, moments in fiction, her delight at seeing the Philly fanatic. Always great. Uh, all right. I don't think you have to be a Phillies fan to be to delight in seeing the Phillies. <laughs> That's Phillies true. Fan. I imagine Giants fans have to have sort of like the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of relationship with the fanatic because of his uh, decades long war with Tommy Lasorda. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, the next great scene I have is after Bashir reveals that O'Brien's rotator cuff will need time to heal and mm-hmm. he can't play in the game. Cisco realizes they need a new third baseman. And so he recruits Cassidy Yates. Almost the instant she steps out the airlock. Uh, I really think it's a great scene for, well, largely it's very rare. You get to see someone loose and just doing a baseball swing while they're waiting for something. And he does that with the bouquet of flowers. Um, and then he asks Cassidy Yates, how long are you around? She says, as a matter of fact, my next three cargo runs have been reassigned. And Cisco says, really? And Cassidy <laughs> replies, oh, bureaucrats. Who knows why they do anything? And Cisco says, who knows? Now, so that's did he get it reassigned? Oh yeah, absolutely. That's <laughs> once this once this happens, like he's in it to win it. I did want to circle back to the infirmary scene because I okay, you like that scene? Okay, great. Uh, okay. Yeah, I thought that was great. That was one of a couple that that really stood out. Like it's the funny. It's always funny, like when you're getting people playing a sport for the first time, they're discovering new ways that they've injured themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I just thought that. And then you realize that some of these injuries are the result of of uh, Rom um. <laughs> swinging his bat carelessly. Uh, he hurt, he so, took out Worf. He took out Quark. <laughs> yeah, that's so. It's just just a nightmare. Very. Uh, and then it gets an, I, I'm I'm gonna step on best Trek tropes, but uh, Miles O'Brien's bulky rotator cuff is uh is a truck trope that that's that right up here oh my gosh you totally that's exactly right he injured that next generation for sure yes that's there's great. It, and then and there's the kayaking incident yep. and then it gets injured again in the uh, <laughs> when they're fighting in uh in orbit around cardassia in the last episode so yep. what is a bench coach though other than a chief of operations so it, it works so whether true. they realize it or not they were they were right on with that guy yeah, so I mean, just realizing it now as an adult, you're kind of like paying attention. I'm like, all right, he knew Cassie's going to be around, but now you're watching it and like, holy shit. <laughs> he really changed things to make sure he was going to win this one. And and he played, you couldn't even tell he was lying. Avery Brooks did not make the choice to be like, she's not looking at me, so I'm going to assume I got away with it. He lied so casually. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but this was the guy that did get the Romulans into the war. So lying is like second. This is a white lie. By this time, you yes. become comfortable with it. Yes, <laughs> he'd already sold his soul. That's what's, right. what's altering the cargo rats to to win a baseball game. She's pretty good. Like it, this. I is, didn't question I was, it when he said I need Cassidy on the team. I didn't question. Of course, he would want her because she's good. Of course, yeah, she is pretty good. Well, this this is what what I was talking about earlier with like the trouble with theater making theater kids play baseball uh it never looks good on screen but i think penny johnson was one of the uh one of the better baseball players in terms of like convincing actions Uh, we're definitely at a list of two or three that the list does not go very long so in this one uh so then the next now we've got cassidy at third base wharfs at first nugs at catcher um and this is this is where we get rom really screwing up it takes him three throws to get the ball back into the infield. This is after the ball has gone over his head. I lived that nightmare so many times in Little League. <laughs> uh, so he's even in right field, which is where they put the bad kids yep. in Little League. And, you know, he has to throw left-handed to make this the actor actually look bad at baseball. So this is the whole sequence where Solak is scouting the team. Rom finally takes batting practice. Jake has to throw underhanded just to give him a shot. And, and Rom winds up chucking the bat in uh, Jake's direction, and that leads to Cisco kicking him off the team. I, I'm just going to be honest here. Basically, every scene in the baseball stadium, I think, is a great scene. They're off the station, and they're doing ridiculous things or baseball things. So I'm I'm totally in tune. I'm enjoying it. There are some great gifts that come out of this. The one where <laughs> Rom swings and misses and and, uh, and leaves his feet all together is, is really yeah. good. <laughs> He does like a pirouette with the bat. It was mm-hmm. great. And then I really think this is one of the better montages that Deep Space Nine ever did because it was one of, you know, I'm being completely selfish here, listener, because it's a baseball themed one. But it's the montage that my mind begins with. This is after Rom gets kicked off the team there. And then all the theater kids or all the nerds, all the astronauts are saying, well, we're going to quit too. This is supposed to be fun. And he's like, don't quit. And so he's like, just play and have a good time. And, and so they stay on. And then it kicks off this montage where 
Bashir wonders what Chief O'Brien's chewing. He says it's chewing gum. It's tradition. (laughs) Said they infuse it with flavor. Oh, what did you infuse it with? Scotch. That's like I I had that as as um uh, a great line. It's just like there's there's not a whole lot for really anyone other than like Rom and Cisco to do uh, in this in that in this episode, but they get like. Bashir and O'Brien and and Worf uh, get a couple zingers in. And so I appreciated that. It continues into the strategy session where Cisco's going over what to do in the case of a double play. Uh, And I liked it mainly because of that Akutagram, baseball strategy 4577. And it's going Mm -hmm. over the rules. I'm like, whatever happened to those old Akutagrams? Some of those are cool. And I I liked all the baseball graphics in this episode. And they're wondering what a fly ball is and then... Worf looks it up on the pad. You get the little animation. Yeah. Yep. Cassidy helps Bashir with his batting stance. And Alexander Siddig gives that little smirk like, I'm so cool. <laughs> I just thought that was <laughs> that was great. Uh, the Ferengi staff are tossing objects at Quark very quickly. Yeah. It improves his fielding. I really like that. Armin Shiverman probably doesn't get enough credit for being fully committed to playing Quark in every episode and every scene. And that guy just, he has a motor that won't quit. He's awesome. Yeah. Because, you know, Quark starts the episode being like, Rom, you're a loser. You're not going to make the team. And then Lita says, well, you don't have a heart because you sold it. And it like, that's enough to get him on the team. And then he sticks. He makes it. <laughs> so it's just like Quark secretly awesome is, is a funny thing. Dax and Bashir try to work out their outfielder signaling as a ball falls between them. Folks, that happens to major league players. You know, you're, you're not you're not used to the center fielder, right fielder dynamic there. It happens. Uh, Dax playing center field because uh, one of her past lives was uh, was an acrobat is very funny to me also. Not only that, she attended uh, national champion or college world series champion Ole Miss where she met uh, <laughs> Leonard McCoy. Oh, that's right. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Uh, I like the little beat where Bashir is scanning Jake's elbow. How many sliders do you think he threw in these two weeks? I had that thought too. They said rotator cuff, and then I'm like, oh my God, Jake is throwing every pitch of batting practice and every pitch in the in these scrimmages for two weeks. And then he's throwing it like, if they don't have the the uh, the medical technology to, to flawlessly re- uh, replace your, your rotator cuff at this point, like uh, Jake is... Jake's going to have Tommy John surgery by like Friday of the first week. <laughs> well, they could just replicate those tendons at this point. And also they're not drug testing these guys. So he's at least getting some HGH or some. You, you do <laughs> get, you do get everything from the nineties. You get like multiple arm injuries from pitcher overuse. You get genetically engineered uh, Julian Bashir. Uh, and then uh, you get the, the threat of a strike. That's right. The, and then these, the montage ends with Kira walking past Oda's security office and seeing him practicing his umpire signaling. Um, and that was that was cute. So I really enjoyed it. It was just a nice, cute little thing that really mm. shows the team coming together. You know, it was a bummer for me watching this going like, well, I don't want to see my heroes lose. That's a bummer. And they suck at baseball. That also is a bummer. But it is important to remember that Cisco was able to teach non-corporeal, non-linear aliens about baseball in like 10 minutes. So I I kind of think he could teach this ragtag group of people how to play baseball a little bit in two weeks. And so good job. Yeah, I thought they did a pretty decent job. Uh, the next great scene I have is Cisco gives Cassidy the background on his beef with Solok. It starts with her going over his swing. I just love that she's like, 
she's as good as Jake and and Ben. It's why they're they're all gonna make a nice family together. Uh, and then we get the whole story that when they were in the academy together, Cisco challenged Solak to a wrestling match. Um, it didn't go well for Cisco. And then Solak wrote five psychology papers about this wrestling match while they were at the academy. And then Michael, I have a question. Cisco then goes on to say, over the years, he wrote a dozen papers, each one about human behavior, each one starting with this wrestling match. Now, does that mean or suggest that Solak wrote seven more or at least 17 articles? <laughs> These people, like, the the pace of academic publishing in the Star Trek universe is astounding. So I have no doubt that Solak could, and also, like, you know, I guess Iris Stephen Barry even said this, that, like there's nothing wrong with a little self-plagiarism. So if you're going to you know, try to milk the same anecdote um, for 17 different papers, I guess that's your prerogative. But <laughs> So this is definitely one of those, why are you so obsessed with me moments it for does. the Vulcan Solok? <laughs> yeah, it does make me wonder what Solok's whole deal is. Well, and I think the episode touches on that and maybe with some different directing choices, they could have played on that a little bit better. Put thought on that later. It's kind of weird to me. A lot of the time, these older episodes sort of exist in amber. So in my mind, it's hard to go back and crack them open and figure out what could have been done differently. But you look at that and it's like, well, the episode is very heavily suggesting this other thing, which does pay off at the ending in the end in the last scene. But does this other stuff do the work. I think Ira Bear had mentioned in another interview that he felt like this episode kind of lagged or was let down by the fact that Solok disappears for large stretches of it. But here's a whole scene that's about him. So he, in my mind, I don't think that's a necessarily a strong assessment. I just don't think it was all connected as cleanly as it, it could have feels, been. Yeah, I, I could see that criticism, but I, I think Solok is just sort of like the inciting incident. Like right. he's the, he's the blind man pew of this, uh, uh, from from Treasure Island um, of this this uh, episode. He's just there to kick it off and then he shows up, makes periodic appearances. It's not really about him. Yeah, I mean, and then the scene ends with Cisco saying, promise don't, not to tell the crew about this. This is my, my great scene. <laughs> this very un-Star Trek smash cut to, yes. to Cassidy immediately telling everybody. <laughs> And then, you know, we get we get the real emotional fallout where Nog saying, like, even I'm starting to hate this guy, which is the entire point, And you're supposed mm -hmm. to. And and then, you know, Kira saying, let's win it for the captain. And then they all cheer together. And yeah, yeah exactly that. The smash cut. She's basically the only character that could do that. Yes. And so it's great to use that. And it was good. It's a good sort of uh, turnaround. It explains to them why Cisco has been so serious about this game uh why it matters so much why rom being kicked off like all oh, that makes sense and then uh, effectively the the rest of the episode i think is great because it's the game itself and mm -hmm. we could go down the list of things uh i thought it was cool we get the federation anthem for the very first time uh Solok deleting the stadium crowd just as otis says play ball i thought that was a cool image the first pitch of the game is a hanging slider though yeah you don't want to hang your nickname no <laughs> and it gets crushed for a home run but then it just goes from there. We've got a Vulcan doing a ch Chase Utley-esque takeout slide of Major Kira trying to turn a double play. Worf takes a long time during his timeout. Many Ramirez-esque, I wrote in the notes there. Um, and then he gets called out on strikes, which leads to he and, uh, and Cisco saying, you know, that that's that was a, not a strike, that was a ball. Uh, Odo ejects Cisco. That was great. It was fantastic. 
you get Odo in there so that he's objective and you've got the the real person element instead of a computer strike zone and then it backfires on Cisco spectacularly. I think that's such a missed opportunity from Cisco is not having not having a changeling. Do you have any idea how much ground Odo could cover in the outfield? <laughs> Yeah, there's no home runs being hit against him, theoretically. If you can't think of that, you deserve to lose by nine runs. <laughs> like, maybe Solak was right. Dax makes the acrobatic uh, flip catch. That was mm-hmm. cool. Uh, I I love when, after Cisco's been ejected and he's in the stands and Rom's cheering with what's going on, he's like, oh, but he keeps moving away from Cisco because he's, you know, that Cisco's mad at him. I liked all that. It, just to really finish off that storyline. Um, I did like the beat of Nog having to tag all the Vulcans. That was funny. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Worf screaming at him, find him and kill him. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then we go into Cisco substituting Rom in to, you know, do something that we haven't seen on a baseball field before. I think I, once Cisco's not managing the game, he's out of it. He kind of is able to take in what's going on. Like, Oh, once, you watch a baseball game, you see something you've never seen before. Well, let's create a little more chaos and let's put Nog into it. Uh, so it was great. A very baseball and Star Trek combination. And we get a s- accidental safety squeeze out of it. After and, uh, a, an unbelievably clean pop-up slide uh, from <laughs> Nog as he's running into third. I was trying to put this together. So they clearly messed up because batting order wise. So we see in the, in the coaching boxes, we see Esri on first and Cassidy on third. And so in my mind, it's like, what Nog didn't hit a triple. Did he, he didn't hit a leadoff triple. Did he, but he might have, he, he, he might have, but I mean, it, it doesn't quite make sense. Well, Esri's hitting behind him. Yes, exactly. So it's just hmm. like, uh, whatever, but it, it was a great pop-up slide. Um, so, so lot getting tossed because he touches Odo, the Empire, not supposed to do that. And then the last great scene is the last scene, I think, when they're celebrating at Quark's. And it gets to what Ira Bear was talking about in your interview. He's like, I'm a firm believer that the Vulcans are assholes. And I like when they're Me jerks. Too. Yeah. <laughs> so we should return them to this idea and a very a classic Star Trek ending where they all laugh at the Vulcan for something that's not like really that all that funny, but in for them, it's clear it is. The Vulcans won, but they didn't beat the humans. That's the that's the whole idea. To manufacture triumph is this whole thing. Uh, but as as Rocky II will tell you, it's very important to break the spirit of your opponent as well. That's why yeah. Apollo was willing to do the second fight. <laughs> um, but uh, it was it was great. Cisco Avery Brooks being relaxed. Cisco is always nice to see, and the apology and all that stuff. They had some of the other logicians present. This was the idea that I had earlier. So they had some of other of Solok's crew there, and it would have been fun if we would have had a cut because they were kind of lined up, and there probably just wasn't time or they just didn't have this thought. But you know, when Solok's getting shown up, it would have been interesting or fun to cut to all of them, sort of at the same time raising an eyebrow and realizing, <laughs> like, oh, our captain is getting emotional. This is a this is a correct assessment by Not- these other Vul- non-Vulcans. I think that's that's a casting hurdle because not everybody can do the the single eyebrow raise. So getting eight other actors who can do the Vulcan eyebrow raise and play baseball convincingly is a, 
that's a big ask. That's a great point. I'm glad you're on this episode to uh, push back against that idea. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think Vulcan casting in general is very difficult, regardless of what physical things they can do. Uh, and I'll get into that a little bit later. But at least half the episode has great scenes in my in my view. I think you like this episode a little bit more than I do, but that's well, fine. That's fine. That's, that's yeah. fine. All right. Best Trek tropes, the Vulcans being assholes and the crew yep. getting a kick out of taunting them. Vulcan arrogance. And I think Vulcan arrogance, like being logical in such a way that seems inherently emotional is uh, is something that I think is really well done in this episode. Yeah, I mean, I think he's being an asshole by bringing the baseball by intentionally picking Cisco's favorite game. Sure. Yeah. The captain being acquainted with the episode's adversary because of their Starfleet Academy days. Mm, that's good. I think I, I sometimes it depends on how it's used, but I'm in this case, I'm including as best Trek trope. Something's wrong with the ship's holodeck. We kind of actually get that when he when Captain Solok says the Tecumbra's holodecks are under repair. It's always something wrong with those damn starship holodecks. <laughs> it's a, there's a lot of moving parts in those. It's a very yeah. complicated piece of machinery. And the USS Tecumbra having an all Vulcan crew like the USS Intrepid and the immunity syndrome. Uh, there's another reference that, that happens in the USS Hera. That's Geordi's mom's ship in the episode Interface on TNG. But that was only a predominantly Vulcan ship, not an all Vulcan ship. So I don't think that counts the same way. But I wanted to mention it for any people out there who might flag that. But I, I like when there's all Vulcan ships for some reason, because I want to know what that's all about. But anyway, any that other best structure? Absolutely miserable. The one I had was <laughs> was learning the learning the alien game. We see a lot of in in peak performance, um, and then uh, the game obviously, and throughout Voyager, they're playing Calto, like sort of playing this like very ostentatious versions of alien chess. And this mm-hmm. takes that trope and inverts it, where you have aliens learning to play a game that we all know. We're sort of seeing the other side of that for the first time. That's great. Uh, worst Trek tropes. Why don't you go first? Uh, I had one and it is awkward translation of Imperial units to metric. Uh, <laughs> where, where Cisco, first of all, says when they're lining up to play catch, he says, everybody stand 10 meters apart, which nobody has ever said the word meter on a baseball, <laughs> on a baseball field, field before. <laughs> and uh, it's the rules. You get ejected if you do that. <laughs> and then and then when Worf is um, is arguing the call, he says that ball was at least half a meter outside. <laughs> That's a great one. I put all of them being a bunch of fucking nerds, which is yeah. the, to your point about the theater kids, but also what you just said about the inversion of the trope. Uh, it's just sometimes it's like Cisco and the Cisco's know what they're doing and the humans do. Cassidy Yates knows what they're doing, but you know, Bashir could have been a little more clever, I think. Uh, Chief O'Brien seemed to pick it up a little bit faster, too. But it was just just silly. It's Sometimes it's the worst trick trope. It reminds you that they're doing something different from what they normally do, yeah. which sometimes can take you out of it. So, uh, Which may be why it took me so many years to like this episode more now than I did when I first saw it. So because at the time I'm like, I don't need to watch them being bad at something that I've seen played well <laughs> or them learning to understand something I already know. So most of it's time quality. I feel like we're going to go off on this a little bit. Uh, why don't you go first here? Uh, everything about the aesthetics of the of baseball, they played at the the stadium for Loyola Marymount. And so all like the blue outfield walls, the, the bleacher setups, all of that is very nineties, the uniform design, which even though I said, I love it, like with the, the arm of the, 
docking arms to the stadium, like overlapping with the seam of the baseball. I thought that was very, it's a little busy for me for, for a, a baseball logo, but I think it's so clever. I don't care. Um, and uh, Jake wearing a batting glove in the field on his non-throwing <laughs> hand. Uh, the rules, the Odo quotes a rule to Cisco regarding contact of an umpire. And that was the major league rule league baseball rule book actual section that he quotes correctly, but at the time of the episode, so 98, it's since changed in 2015. Uh, same with the takeout slide at second base. That rule has since changed mm-hmm. because they mentioned in the dugout that that's just how it is. Um, and then Nog having to tag each player, that no longer is something that has to happen either. Uh, Michael, what that made me wonder, though, what's the wackiest thing that's ever happened to you on a baseball field? I assume you've never had to go and tag each player on a bench before. Most of the like wacky stuff that I've seen, like I've I've been to like wild playoff games before, but like college pitchers just losing their command and uh, you know walking six guys in a row. I've seen that before. That's the wackiest thing that's happened to me was I was playing uh, second base in a in a pickup game at a family picnic with like extended cousins and stuff, and uh, ball I thought got hit over my head and came down and hit me right on the button of my cap and I had no idea uh, where the ball was until uh, it happened. So that feels like a slapstick element from straight out of this episode. Nice. Yeah, that's for sure. Conseco esque almost. How did that um, not happen to Rom? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, mine was, I was trying to learn how to bat, you know, be a switch hitter and I didn't like how the bat was going. So I crossed over to the other side to being right-handed, which I should have been out right away. This is Little League. And then I I just lined a double between the shortstop and the third baseman, or I lined a ball between the shortstop and third baseman. And I proceeded to round the bases because they kept overthrowing every bag I wound up at, which I counted as a home run, as the only home run I hit, but it was far from it, and I should have been Definitely, yeah. yeah. So little nine-year-old me can just shut up. But uh, anyway, this episode was shot, like you said, at the Loyola Marymount University in Marina del Rey at their Page Stadium. Uh, another of its time quality being not just how it looked, but they didn't even have stadium lighting, no light game or night games until 2013. And they also did a bunch of other upgrades in 2020. So it looks a little bit different. Regrettably, their website does not mention this episode. It says Page Stadium has been the site of filming for numerous commercials television shows and feature films it served as the site for the baseball scenes in the hit movie my blue heaven starring steve martin i gotta be honest with you if you're gonna mention my blue heaven i think you can mention star trek never heard of my blue heaven uh uh i think it's steve martin and rick moranis and steve martin is in that one playing the goof and rick moranis is playing the straight man okay but that's all. And I think Nora Ephron might have written the screenplay. That's kind of all I vaguely remember. He has really tall hair in that one, Steve Martin. Uh, the Lions were 24 and 9 at home in 1998, the year this episode was filmed. So just thought I'd throw that They've in there. been intermittently pretty good. All those like California mid majors have their moments. Loyola Marymount is, sits on a bluff. It's beautiful. If you ever, if anyone ever gets the chance to go to Marina Del Rey, check it out. Um, and then you mentioned the stands, but I also say all the human spectators in the stands. I caught a guy. I caught a little. I caught a guy in a bowling shirt uh, that looked like one Brian Sabian used to wear in the nineties, <laughs> twentieth century. There was definitely someone wearing a jean shirt with jean pants, or you know, uh, jean overalls. The haircuts, a real this is nineteen ninety eight vibe from yeah. the spectators. 
Now it's time for the line must be drawn here. Great lines. Death to the opposition. I'm just going <laughs> to say that. That's the one that gets pulled out. But I think every line of dialogue that Worf has, apart from the home plate argument, is him going way over the top, like violent and martial with like basic baseball idioms. Uh, so, you know, the, like the 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 misery that must have been Michael Dorn putting on the wharf makeup every day. Uh, they, they pay, it must've been compounded by having him have to play baseball in wharf makeup. Uh, yeah. But they, they paid him back by giving him a couple good singers. And then the scotch flavored chewing gums, uh, uh, bits was really good. I didn't, I'm not going to quote it here, but I liked Cisco's, uh, speech on the first day on the first tryout. I thought that was great. Uh, and, and I did like, a lot of the conversation he has or what he talks about with um, with Cassidy when he's explaining their background with Solok. But yes, not only death to the de- opposition does Worf has, he has a really high on base percentage for, for this episode here. He, he is um, very efficient in his dialogue. We yes. will destroy them in the, uh, in the teaser. That was great. Uh, and there and was when, something, he's, when they, when, uh, when Ben Cisco introduced Jake, the slider, uh, Cisco, I couldn't quite make out exactly what Worf said, but it was something like, ah, oh, the slider, excellent. And, <laughs> uh, and then find him and kill him with the tagging. Uh-huh. But when he's arguing the balls and strikes and he says, you know, what, what are you talking about? That ball was at least half a meter. How could you call it a strike? I love the way he says, reverse the call, reverse the call. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Anton Critian Award for Best Performance. Uh, I'm going to go with Avery Brooks as Captain Benjamin Sisko. It's important to remember that Avery Brooks, uh, very theatrical and so very theatrical performance here, but I think it works for the most part. And then I has had it as an honorable mention, Penny Johnson as Cassidy Yates. One of the few times I really liked Cassidy in an episode, not that I ever really disliked her, but she had such a really specific part. I thought she nailed it, but I'm interested to hear your thoughts. Yeah, this is a good Cassidy episode for sure. I think Max Grudenchik is the standout performer of this episode. I think just the a lot of the physical comedy that that he does, um, I think he's just really underrated what he puts into ROM generally. And this is a, uh, I think, really good ROM episode too. His waddle as he yeah. walks around and then you realize, oh, he always does that even when he's on the station. Uh, it just looks a lot funnier in baseball stance. Yes. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Most things do. Uh, so the Shatner, this isn't necessarily bad acting, just someone who you felt really went for it. And that's why I said Avery Brooks for this one. And I think, I like, he's a very theatrical <laughs> actor. Yeah. And in, in normal circumstances, he's sort of half a notch, like, more keyed up than anybody else on the show. And then you take that and like, obviously he's having a really good time doing this, but also he's sort of channeling like a Leo DeRocher figure, (laughs) which just, and meanwhile, everybody else is just sort of playing confused the entire time because none of the other, you know, none of the rest of the crew has any idea what's going on for the first half hour of this episode and so the contrast of of like normal avery brooks and cisco ratcheted up an extra two notches uh over everybody else sort of playing more subdued is just it leaps off the screen at you and i i don't i think like i don't think it's bad it's just like it's a huge contrast i totally agree and that's 
my honorable mention here is I, I have Avery Brooks also. I had him for both, but also Gregory Rogrowski as Solok. I had him mm-hmm. as well because he's doing he's trying very hard to underplay the Vulcan to an extent that it actually causes Brooks's uh, playing off of that to be even bigger than maybe it needed to be. You know, Vulcans, there's um, the, the Vulcan who I'm blanking. So Val in uh, Enterprise, yeah. like if Gary Graham, I not Gary Graham, but I think if he had been, you know, cast in this role, there's like a supposed to be a little twinkle or a little, the Vulcans are supposed to be covering emotions that they have. And here he was trying to play it very much like I have no emotions. Yeah. And I think that is what made Brooks's performance seem even more outlandish. And it also just caused him to speak slowly with lots of weird pauses in between their, excuse me, between their dialogue. And I thought that direction wise, you could have probably had a little bit of a, someone who wasn't <laughs> going for as much as a computer that it could have been a little more dynamic, but it's also very hard to yeah. repeat a Leonard Nimoy performance. So. It's a it's a tough thing to do. Like you said, like Saval is a really good example of like being able to play that emotionless character with a little bit of like put a little mustard on it. Um, But I think I mean, just the complete blankness is exactly what that character requires. He's not supposed to be like a well-rounded individual. He's supposed to be a cartoon. and, And that's exactly what they do. What part of this will they teach at Starfleet Academy? So I'll tell you what they're not going to teach at Starfleet Academy, which is as good as as Cassidy is and as much as she's essential for keeping that team together. She gives Ben terrible hitting advice during there. She's she's saying you shouldn't lift your front foot while you're (laughs) during your load. Like, I thought she was going to say he's stepping in the bucket or something like it's not even a leg kick that he's doing like you. I don't know if this is just 1999 hitting mechanics coming out, but you see guys like completely flex their leg and, and lean back on their back foot as, as they're loading the swing. I'm just, I'm flabbergasted. She wants him to go completely flat footed. You know, Ben is like a big athletic dude. You need to get him to, to really get into that weight transfer. If he's going to make hard contact, I'm just, I'm appalled. It's just mystifying. <laughs> All right, terrible. Yeah, I don't think they're teaching any hitting mechanics there. There's no drive line or anything like that at Starfleet Academy. Uh, there's a non-zero chance, I think, that ca- one of Captain Solok's many, 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 many papers on irrational human behavior might have made it into the syllabus of for one class. <laughs> Just law of averages. One of them had to get yeah, through. <laughs> if not before the war, then almost certainly after, since he's a two-time christopher pike medal of valor winner so mm-hmm. it seems like it'd be more prestigious also he probably wrote more papers because of the baseball game so he's got a huge body of work that surely one of them must have landed. oh on. could you imagine like like him writing the the i challenged this asshole to his own game and <laughs> and crushed him and he's acting like he won can you just get a load of this guy journal of veteran psychology or federation <laughs> psychology are there paper are are there journals i wonder that take in that look at other papers that are examining the writer of the articles as opposed to the content of it the, like they're the people being studied are are the solocs instead of who they're studying i wonder well, I if there's if, journals that yeah <laughs> I don't know how like familiar with academia, like you know, like academic publishing, but like professors now are that catty that they'll publish 
responses to each other's papers and basically like have a Twitter flame war in the, the pages of a journal over the course of years. So the Pike Middle Valor thing, I'm going to just raise it here because we see in the season premiere that Cisco receives his first and Solok has two. Given everything that we've been told or shown about Captain Christopher Pike in Strange New Worlds and in Discovery, I'm having a really hard time figuring out why there's a medal named after him. I don't in, I don't like naming a, a gallantry award after a like a recent you know relatively recent historical figure anyway but yeah this is not like christopher pike particularly in like the bruce or i guess like bruce greenwood is not in this timeline but like the anson mount christopher pike like might be my favorite star trek captain uh but he's definitely not the one i would think of as an ass kicker well, and just two facts. These are just legitimate facts. The the one more main fact than this next one, I would say. One is stronger fact than the other. One, the Federation or Starfleet ordered the Enterprise away from the Klingon War because they wanted to protect the best that Starfleet rep- represents. That is legitimately what he is told straight to his face. That is what the audience is informed as. It's what Pike regrets that they weren't a part of the war. So there's that element, the Klingon war where like a hundred million people died, mm-hmm. you know, not there. Didn't fight it. Then in the season finale, season two, we see him shitting his pants <laughs> when he has to make a command decision. So I'm not thinking of Valor when I'm thinking of Christopher Pike. And that's, I mean, he saves I, some cadets. I, I guess that's it. where he gets it from. But anyway, it's definitely Valorous, but yeah, it's yeah. not like the kind of Valor you talk about 200 years later from a society that's been through <laughs> dozens of brutal, you know, catastrophic wars in that, in that meantime, I'm with you. Uh, this is our new question for this season. Could this episode have been hornier and would that have made it better? I would assume from a Phillies fan, you would say it could have could been have had a Darren Dalton. <laughs> just a, just a passing reference. Cassidy Yates being super into it. Uh, I think it could have in that scene. I was just been or where we talked about where he, she's explaining where Cisco's explaining the Solok scene. It could have been started in the bed at, you know, after the facts and uh, she's not giving him knots. They're kind of, she doesn't want to cuddle though. And she's like, you know, you mm-hmm. should work on your swing. <laughs> like it could have started just from the bed instead. That's all. Yeah, I would say like, is this this is post introduction of Seven of Nine's cat suit? So I wonder if like if this had happened on like Latter Day Voyager, definitely on Enterprise, like the the practice gear that they would have been wearing would have been completely different. Like everybody would have been out there in like sliding shorts and crop tops uh, instead of. <laughs> I think baseball, baseball has pants. baseball does have a horny aspect to it, and I think you it, they did miss that in this episode. Definitely, but it's also it's I mean it's it's a family show. This is you know you. You sure. put a, and particularly like a family show in the nineties. So I guess you'd like tone it down. Like the abs, you know, the, the thing about baseball players, you know, all having dump truck booties, but also, you know, you need actual baseball players for that. So again, the, the shortcomings of the theater kids. My counter to that is four years earlier on the same time slot, Gates McFadden as Dr. Crusher is having an orgasm on uh, family TV. So, you know, there, there's a spectrum, I guess. So. And and far be it for me to criticize <laughs> Star Trek for showing that. But 
<laughs> times evolved very quickly as True. we approached the yes. end of the century. All right, Trek, marry, or kill, take me out to the Hollow Suite. Oh. Now, Trek I'm... just means this is one people should watch. It's like in the 40% of you know, good episodes. It, it kill is in the 30% of like, you know, watch it once or not at all. And then Mary is like, yeah, this is one. When you think of deep space nine, this is one of the episodes you should think of. I'm going to, I'm going to hate myself for this. Cause I watched it the first time or, you know, not the first time, but like, as I was doing prep for the center uh, for this, uh, for this podcast. And I was like, this is not very good. And it's not one of the episodes that I go back and I've spent a lot of time going back and rewatching nineties era star Trek. And I never watched this one. And like, as much as, as I love that it exists and the, but like the dialogue is so wooden and everything is just so like in your face. And then I went back and listened to the, to the interview that I did and it, I started coming around and, but I'm, I'm going to, I'm, I don't like doing this, but I'm going to say kill. You're going to kill it. Yeah. <laughs> it shouldn't have been done. <laughs> wow. And I feel about it like a sort of like an ironic protectiveness of this episode, but in the same way I feel about uh, like the Grey's Anatomy musical episode or the, or move they along a home. musical episode of that. I, I wrote about <laughs> it for the ringer.com. You should go watch it. It's wild. <laughs> It's almost as wild as this this episode, but I'm glad that they, I guess I'm glad they did it, but I can't say it's particularly good. All right. Well, I don't like disagreeing with my guests, but I was going to give it a trek and I'm going to stick with that. So that means that our listeners are going to break the tie with a poll at some point, but I certainly respect your opinion because like I said, when I watched this episode as a 17 year old, I was like, whatever. <laughs> and i think just over time just coming to appreciate how it fits into the whole and uh all the star trek that's come since it as well which is tough not to compare it to i think there's just a fun element to it it's a side of avery brooks it's absolutely fun yeah especially as the show goes on it's kind of like a side of avery brooks we see less and less of um i think i liked all the baseball elements of it even if like as you say the, the baseball stuff is not necessarily all that great. That movie, The Fan with Robert De Niro and Wesley Snipes, that some of the most frustrating baseball scenes I've ever seen. <laughs> I was going like, to say, just, if you dump on The Fan, we're actually yeah. going to have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> no, and it's like, oh, they're even using uh, my favorite team and the stadium and everything. And I'm like, this this movie, what the hell's wrong with it? And then you see a movie like For Love of the Game, and like these baseball scenes are great. Why do they have to make the rest of the movie? You know, it's just you know, never a good match. It's always tough. No, I was just going to list like baseball movies that are good and have good baseball scenes. There's like three this, or four of them. But. This is great because I want people to read your work and I want people to get a sense of how you think about things. And so, yeah, that's what, what are they? Hit, hit me with them. So a league of their own. I think the baseball is actually pretty good. Um, uh, Little Big League, because they got mostly baseball players and Scott Patterson, who is a minor leaguer before he went to be Luke on Gilmore Girls. Uh, and everybody wants some. They did the same thing. So like a lot of the uh, the ballplayers in that movie, there's not a lot of baseball. You don't actually see a game, but it's all really convincing. Like Tyler Hecklin, uh, who actually played like really high level college baseball is like the, the star of that team and is now Superman. Um, so I think the, the baseball from from and um, Blake Jenner, who um, is 
done a bunch of stuff is not a baseball player. I think he's actually a pretty decent um, theater kid pitcher. But the other pitcher who you get to see throw a lot in that movie is Houston Street's younger brother. So there's a oh, I love everything about that movie. The baseball is pretty good, too. I'm glad you didn't mention like summer catch or something like that. So that's good. Summer catch is so bad. We had, um, uh, what was his name? Uh, Kevin falls who did summer catch and then went on to do pitch. We had him on the MLB show uh, at the same time. And did he also I, do clubhouse that CBS? I don't show? remember. Okay. Um, but yeah, I guess if you want to say like, you know, your favorite team being depicted in, uh, uh, in baseball movies, You're like summer catches it, it. Yeah, might be getting at the heart of this. Why it's like seeing Captain Cisco in a in a Giants hat really still does it for me. All these years, <laughs> Freddie Prince Jr. in a Phillies uniform doing <laughs> such an unconvincing motion that they can't. I don't think in the entire movie they show an un an uninterrupted shot of him throwing the ball and the ball reaching its destination. It's always him starting the wind up and then them yeah. cutting away, <laughs> cutting to the extra. Um, all right. Fair enough. So fangraphs.com. You can read Michael's work there if you have any interest And in, it's, he's not uh, an impenetrable read. He's, he, he writes like a person in the world and the numbers come in to illustrate his points. Always a great I'm read gonna there. I'm going to put that on my business cards. Writes like a person. <laughs> Check out Michael's writing on fangraphs.com. Like I said, And thank you for listening to this episode. Next week, we're getting lost in the Delta Quadrant. We're going to go check out Voyager 7 of 9 in our cat suit. We're going to play Trek, Mary Kill with Drone uh, from Season 5. The Doctor's hollow emitter and some Borg nanoprobes get caught in a tree, K-I-S-S-I-N-G-ing, and it's up to 7 of 9 to take care of the offspring. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Give us five stars right there or in your Spotify app or wherever you listen to podcasts and you can follow us on twitter and instagram checkmarykpod.com michael thanks so much for being with us thanks for having me tmk out thanks michael i can't believe you killed it no i'm just kidding (laughs)